This is Tommy's Outdoors episode 21 with Paul Gleason. Paul Gleason is a big time adventure. This is the only way, uh, this is the, the, the most accurate way uh, in my head I can uh, describe Paul. Um, so, uh, topic of adventure was discussed many times on the podcast. Um, episode 14 springs into mind Wild Adventure Way uh, and their CEO, Caroline Birch. Um, also, uh, episode 12 with uh, Kuba Standera, who was uh, going to cycle through Sahara Desert to go fishing there, out of all the places. And, um, and obviously, episode 16 with Tomas McIntyre, uh, who cycled solo and unsupported across the United States. And this year, he's gearing towards cycling across, or should I say, down the length of Africa. Um, but, so... We discussed adventures many times, but I suppose out of all those adventures, um, Paul has uh, probably the longest resume, uh, and uh, not only longest, but kind of like a biggest, you know, most difficult, at least in, in my estimation, um, adventures or, or expeditions. Um, so to name just a few, he cycled across the Australia, um, then um, he, he crossed the Atlantic in a rowboat, yep rowboat across the Atlantic and um, and also he uh, he was at, he attempted to cross uh, the Northwest Passage in the Canadian high Arctic also on the, on human power um, rowboat again um, so so these are really like a, a monumental expeditions um, at least at least this is this is how I how I feel about it um, so I'm quite happy. I am quite happy that Paul accepted the invitation to the podcast, and is going to share with uh, with all of you um, stories from his adventures. And um, just before we go to the main podcast, um, please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, whatever whatever platform you're using for podcasts. We are there, so please subscribe and rate, rate five stars. If you feel we don't deserve a five stars, leave the comment uh, and tell us why. But if you think the podcast deserves five stars, go to the platform uh, that you're using to listen to your podcast and rate us and leave the review. This is great help and really helps in development of the podcast. Um, so, And also don't forget to uh, follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. You can find all the links um, to relevant social media on the a, on a, on a, on a website, tommysoutdoors.com. Okay, so now, without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Paul Gleason. Paul Gleason. Welcome, welcome to the show, and thank you for doing this. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks for having me. So, uh, uh, with us today, Paul Gleason, uh, we met earlier on some other occasion, and uh, and then you shared the story about your adventure. And uh, so, obviously, today on that podcast, you're in a capacity of an adventurer, and you have uh, a lot of adventures you can share with us. So this is this is what I'm saying. You're you're a TEDx speaker. You there's a TEDx video on the, on YouTube. You're sure, talking yeah. about one of the uh, your, your adventures, and also on your on your website, there's a number of things that you've been doing. 
So maybe it's just, you know, I'm just saying you're an adventurer, but maybe you want to introduce yourself in any different way to our listeners. Yeah, well, look, I suppose <laughs> we, can, we can all put different labels or different hats on ourselves. But um, yeah, like, I mean, if I was to maybe take a step back, um, probably for most of my adult life, I've been I've been fascinated by us as humans and how the mind works and mm. how we work and how some people can flourish some people can get stuck at times how we do at setbacks etc so um i suppose unbeknownst to myself starting maybe 15 years ago i started to maybe express that through doing different adventures mm -hmm. um you know my training originally was in tax and finance wow. um in the last decade or so i've sort of transitioned into performance coaching so mm -hmm. working with individuals and working with teams in companies around sort of enhancing what we do and enjoying and being more engaged in what people do and I suppose on the adventure side like I started uh, years ago I decided to cycle across Australia that was the first long distance trip yeah. uh, which was coast to coast from Perth to Sydney and it was like a, this this solo self-supported kind of yeah cycle. it was um I was traveling with some friends. I was living in Australia at the time mm -hmm. and uh, I got this idea that I wanted to do this. And then I thought, well, it's the challenge of it. You know, it was about a 5,000 kilometer trip. So I was the only one cycling. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to do it, would I use it for something a little bit more purposeful than yeah. just me? Yeah. So contacted a, a charity in Australia and said, why don't I try and raise some money for you? I'm going to be doing this anyway. So, um, and I think probably again, maybe without being massively consciously aware of it at the mm -hmm. time i sort of always felt i've been very lucky in life you know i yeah. grew up here in ireland you know i didn't want for anything great mm -hmm. parents great family and i suppose maybe I'm, I'm aware there's a lot of people far less fortunate than i am so decided to use the trip to raise some money and and when i did that then i said okay i need to try and get maybe somebody to come with me because mm -hmm. if i'm on the bike six seven ten twelve hours a day i'm yeah. not going to be really raising a whole lot of money yeah so um I put a sign up in a hostel in Melbourne where I was living mm -hmm. um, and somebody answered that, Tori, and then she came with me on the trip. So mm -hmm. uh, we, we raised a, a little bit of money for a 21-year-old Mitsubishi Sigma. That was the car. <laughs> so um, I'd leave in the morning on the bike. Yeah. Tori would stay in the town wherever we were and fundraise. Then in the evening time, she'd jump into the car and meet me and catch you know, you up on the... wherever I was. So it was, it was sort of nearly not disheartening, but what, you know, it might take me eight or nine or ten hours mm -hmm. you know she do it in two or one and a half or, <laughs> or whatever you know so but in a car it doesn't count <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so um so that was i think that was the start of the adventure and, side. and where where you where were you staying overnight was it like always in a in a in a town or some in a village or was it like a tent and then just a camp yeah we, we i looked originally at camping and bringing tents tents and stuff and then i thought if i can i saved up money to do it so i, I had mm -hmm. money just to pay for like little motels or, or b&b's or, or yeah. in australia for any people any of your listeners like in in australia when you go across the nullabor plain so it's mm -hmm. the it's the the um you know when you go east from perth mm -hmm. after about about 800 kilometers or you'll come across the nullabor plain it runs right through pretty much up into adelaide yeah and um it's a stretch where you really have nothing out there so you'd have a roadhouse which would be a petrol station right. a restaurant a pub and a shop and then 200 kilometers of nothing and then you have another roadhouse 
and then another one. Mm. So that stretch of it. Um, Is there like pe- people living there? People live there, yeah. So whoever's running but the roadhouse. They're road like living, living there or they just have a duty to run that roadhouse and they're kind of stuck there for a couple of weeks and then somebody changed yeah. you know, kind of like a lighthouse it, it, duty. Yeah, it was interesting because someone asked me recently, did people look at you doing that, think you were crazy? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, crazy is a again it's a very subjective thing mm-hmm. um but i'd look at people who were living out here in the middle of nowhere and they were basically working running the shop or the pub yeah. or whatever working in it and i was fascinated to go wow like what brings you out here in the middle of nowhere and i remember one day thinking you know one fellow i met i was like are you running from something <laughs> or you know <laughs> <laughs> it was a it was a bit of an odd individual but um so i was nearly more i mean for some of them they actually said I just love I'm a country person and mm-hmm. you couldn't put you couldn't pay me enough to be in a city so yeah it was interesting in one way I might look at them and go god that's a bit different living out here in the middle mm-hmm. of nowhere they could have looked at yeah, me exactly. living in a town going yeah you couldn't you couldn't yeah. drag me there so sure it's sure. it's sort of um that's what I love about these trips is it's sort of I suppose you meet people that you might not ordinarily meet yeah. and because you're on a bike you're going pretty slow yeah yeah um, oh yes and you have a time to you've kind time of absorb to and observe and so yeah on. yeah and, and it also gets you out of your your kind of like a template that you're in and you think that everybody goes like in this routine right you absolutely. go in the morning you do something and like this is how the life looks like and then you go in and you see guys who are living and running roadhouse in australia it's like oh hang on a second totally that's like not what i like and they said like well how could you do anything else because they're in their own kind of frame yeah. of mind and they're like well this is this is all you know this is yeah all. yeah yeah <laughs> i think that's the great thing with traveling and with getting a chance to do different adventure trips is you do meet people you, you just get exposure to different types of people different walks of life mm-hmm. i love listening to people so i love mm-hmm. just hearing people's stories about mm-hmm. where they've come from what they've done how they ended up here um yeah. like i remember it was only four days into the cycle and i got hit by a car oh. and um i it wasn't like a car came past me at night time it was the long, i'll never forget actually it was the longest day of the trip mm-hmm. and it was i think it was about 240 kilometers and my knee was at me um mm-hmm. I didn't really have my bike set. I changed my bike set up and it just it was yeah. just sort of at me a bit. So I was going slower than what mm. I, I might have ordinarily gone. And I'd say I can still feel the pain. I remember every maybe half an hour or so I pulled over in pain. So I strapped up my knee. And so it was probably about 7, 7.30 when I was getting to the, mm-hmm. the town. And I was just coming over the brow of a hill. I'd just gone over a hill. So it was dark and I had lights on. But mm. I, I could see the cars coming behind me because I'd see the lights yeah. and other beams ahead yeah. of me. And... I just, it just happened so quick. This guy came past me and, you know, he must be doing, I don't know, they were all probably doing about 100 kilometers an hour mm-hmm. or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And he just smashed his side mirror onto my elbow and then I just went into the oh. ditch. So I jarred my knee a bit more, but I was fine. You know, I, I, he, he hit me, I'd say from his rear view mirror, saw me going into the ditch and he came back and I, I never forget again, his hand yeah. was shaking. I think he probably thought he just killed me yeah, or something. Yeah. So yeah. I was fine, but I, I, I couldn't, it took me nearly... 10 days before I could leave I tried to leave there twice in the bike and I got like 10-15 kilometers and my knee felt like it was about to pop um, oh. and if it was the last day or something you might have just gone on with it but because mm-hmm. I yeah. pretty much the whole trip ahead of me yeah. I went back and I, I got some physio eventually it was it was fine good mm-hmm. to go but even just that like you get a chance to stay this was in um, I think it was Norseman if I'm not mistaken so it's a mining town and like oh. 
you get to see just like coal mining yeah it was um could have been coal copper i think different minerals okay. and uh out in western australia and um you just got to meet people in the town and people who were there for like you mentioned earlier mm. some people would come in working in the mines for a month mm. or two in and out in and out mm-hmm. so you just get to meet different people so that yeah. was um That's a fun you know the physical challenge was definitely the appeal at the start mm-hmm. with these trips but then as you go through different ones you realize ah, there's a lot more to this than okay just so, the so that was side. something that you kind of discovered while you while you were in it yeah so it was like oh i'm gonna do this this physical difficult thing cycle across the australia yeah and then once you get into this like oh hang on there's more into that right exactly like everything we've just chatted about and you i realized as well that i got hit a second time it was like the more went wrong on the trip the more media coverage you'd get which helped the charity raise money so in a sort of a perverted way like yeah, if, yeah, yeah. you know if you get like the last day of the trip i was um i was coming into so bondi beach in sydney was where mm-hmm. i was going to finish because i started on cottesloe beach in perth so i, w- I went for a swim so the mm-hmm. idea was right go for a swim in the indian ocean mm-hmm. get on the bike and go mm-hmm. and then finish the other side and mm-hmm. go for a swim in the pacific so I was about, uh, I was only 10, 15, I think it was about 10 kilometers from the end. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming in the Princess Highway from Sydney. It's three lanes or four mm-hmm. lanes of traffic and I'm, I'm over at the edge. Mm-hmm. And I just hear the screeching of a car brakes. Mm-hmm. And as I heard the screeches, I was just sort of midway going over my handlebars. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of a surreal thing because I was like, <laughs> have I been... Yeah, yeah, I think I've been hit. <laughs> so I'm I'm flying over the handlebars and I I put my hand out to sort of break my fall and I I don't I think I'm not sure if I got knocked out but I sort of I opened my mm-hmm. eyes and I went in. Mm-hmm. There was people standing around me and and I was sort of I ended up breaking my hand but I've broken I'm sure you've as well if you've broken a lot of bones. Mm-hmm. You know, you've adrenaline pumping through yeah, your system. It so it's not really necessarily that sore. Yes. So I was like, "Ah, I'll worry about that later." I had a couple of scrapes and stuff, but I rang the um the PR lady from the charity had arrived in from yeah. Melbourne because we'd gotten a lot of coverage and mm-hmm. we'd raised a good few quid along the way. And um, I rang and said, look, I've, I'm after getting hit. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. But the back wheel was totally scrunched up. So yeah. I said, I can't cycle it. Yeah. So I said, I'll run the last 10 kilometers because mm-hmm. I didn't want it to finish on the side of a highway. Yeah. Yeah. She said, no, no, stay there. You like there's press and media and stuff. You have yeah. to come. You, you have to come in the bike. <laughs> so, so I stay. I said, fair enough. She goes, I'll, I'll try and get a bike in a shop or something. Mm-hmm. So she went into a bike, explained the situation. And the guys in the bike shop had heard an interview I did that morning. Mm-hmm. So they said, oh, here, you can have the bike. We won't charge you like yeah. a rental bike. Yeah. So she arrives with this bike. It was like an old hybrid mountain bike. Uh-huh. And it was like, I'm not exactly that big, but it's, it looked like I'd stolen my little brother's bike. <laughs> So I'm coming into Bondi Beach at coverage, thing. and you're on the back. <laughs> but um, so you know these things happen. But um, it's that's all part of the experience mm-hmm. as well. Stuff mm-hmm. goes wrong invariably, and in a way, with some of the other stuff that I'm sure we'll get onto, um, it's nearly part of the attraction to yeah. go. Yeah. How am I gonna? Especially now, uh, now, now, once you know about this extra element that you just discovered in the first one, it's like, okay, I'm going to go to the next one. And yeah, like, yeah, yeah. What's going to happen there? Yeah, and it's not like you don't, because people can talk about adventure trips and adventure is a, you know, somebody might decide to run a five kilometer run or a mm. 10 kilometer run. And that could be a big adventure. You know, it could mm. be someone maybe who hasn't run before or, you know, just mm-hmm. maybe a bit out of shape, hasn't, mm-hmm. hasn't yeah. been doing so for a while. And that's brilliant. And then you can have people who take it to another extreme where mm. adventure might mean, you know. Like yourself. Well, yeah, and, be, and beyond, <laughs> like beyond me. I know of people who like have, would do things that 
you know, I just, I wouldn't even consider, like, I mean, mm. it was, I can't remember his name, it was a French, he's neither French or French-Canadian, he's a, um, he's a free soloist climber, and he just mm. recently, last year, went up uh, El Capitan. Yes. Um, Alex. This is, this is like, I don't, I don't, I don't remember his name, but this is a big thing, the El Capitan, I, I, I remember I was, uh, was it podcast and then there was a movie about all the history people who were yeah. who were climbing up El Capitan and what was the time and there was like yeah. a big culture of these rock climbers and then like yeah yeah stuff. yeah and this guy like so he did it Alex I can't remember his second name but he you know he, he soloed it so free solos yeah. no ropes no nothing yeah. and he did it in like four hours like no one has ever actually done this before yeah. let alone yeah. do it so quickly it used to so, take days with people who were camping on the side of a yeah 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 spending night there and all that exactly well, and, now even, it's and, hours. Even, and even that is phenomenal so like mm. i think with adventure depending on whatever level you want to bring it to or push mm -hmm. it i think part of it for me is that a it needs to have for me now at least it has to have a little bit more meaning to it mm -hmm. as to the why and then also as well i think is there's always a chance that you won't succeed now for some people maybe that guy if he makes a mm -hmm. mistake he's dead mm -hmm. i mightn't bring it to that extreme mm -hmm. well i suppose maybe arguably sometimes but mm -hmm. sometimes i think with adventure with true adventure you don't know if you're going to make it and you know yeah. if something goes it's wrong it's interesting it's interesting because uh, a couple of episodes back on the podcast i had a i had a, a lady uh he's she's running the um company called uh wild adventure way i think and they're kind of you know their idea is to allow people to book the adventure right and we obviously we started like hey caroline what's uh what's the adventure and this is she said exactly the same thing anything that is like a some unknown like it might not happen you might not be able to do it yeah. till the end that's the adventure and like you yeah. said is the one guy is gonna be like a 5k run or 5k cycle and yeah. he might not be able to do it yeah or something might happen or like i said you know oh uh, yeah i'm gonna I'm going to climb El Capitan with no ropes. Exactly. Yeah, that yeah. also might not happen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the consequences. <laughs> consequences to that. Yeah. But that's, that's, uh, that's uh, actually very interesting that, that you, you kind of give the same definition of the adventure. Yeah. And I think that's the beauty about it because it's not up to me or anyone else to go, oh, that's an adventure or that's not an adventure. It's, mm -hmm. it's great. Whatever floats someone's boat, you know, mm -hmm. if they, if they, mm -hmm. if they like doing whatever it is yeah you know adventure yeah. racing climbing rowing doesn't really matter like yeah i think it's it's uh that's it's, it's nature is a nature is a good teacher oh absolutely i have one more question about the mm. australia cycle how how did you it was was the dealing with a dehydration and temperature an issue at all or because obviously that would be an issue if if you go through the like completely interior and you know no roadhouses or anything. But you're kind of were sticking to the kind of semi civilized areas, I guess. Is that the yeah? Like I mean, all the roads when I when I looked into doing this, the first thing I did was I I went online to see has it, who's done it. So I'm presuming mm -hmm. someone has done it before, mm -hmm. and I remember I came across a website. And a guy had gone from Sydney to Perth mm -hmm. and he, I was reading his blog and stuff and he was like, next time I decide to cycle across a continent, maybe check the prevailing winds. <laughs> the prevailing winds would be more west to east. Right. So, um, so when I when I looked at it, it was all on, on pave, you know, it was, it was mm -hmm. highway, it was road. Mm -hmm. Now, when you say highway, a highway mm -hmm. out there in the Nullarbor is, you know, it's just a normal road. Like mm -hmm. there's two lanes, one each way. Right. So it's but there's not, a it, tarmac on it. Yeah, yeah, there's oh, tarmacs. Okay. They're all all tarmac roads. These are um, not these like I, I picture in my head in Australia, like a like an outback. unpaved road, outback road. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you could, I mean, it'd be an interesting trip to do. 
maybe to do something like that but do it off-road mm-hmm. you know on a, mm-hmm. on, a, on a trail bike but um it was probably i did it in july so it was their winter time so mm-hmm. it was still warm enough but i'd say um the tiredness so i would have probably done maybe about 150 ish a day 150 mm-hmm. kilometers and then take a day or two off for fundraising. Oh, and, okay, okay, and sort of okay. So, so it wasn't like a day after day after day after no, day. No, you do sometimes, like say going across to Nullarbor, you probably had seven to ten days of mm. more or less 200 kilometers a day where mm-hmm. you're just going, going, because there's mm-hmm. nothing in between. Mm-hmm. So um, it varied. And I also wanted to, you know, I, it took me 60 days to do it. Mm-hmm. I probably lost about two weeks when I got hit the first time. But having said that, you could do it much quicker. So it just depends. Yeah. Some people were like, oh, I want to break a record. I wanted to enjoy the experience too. Oh, yeah. So I think the thing was um, a bit of tiredness. My knee flared up. I, like, I remember cycling one day for I was only for a couple of hours, but I was cycling with one leg because the other leg was killing me. So, um, you know, or another day getting up out of bed. And I remember I had a bit of a cold and I went out and it was just lashing rain, turned into hailstones. And I remember that day, like in the hailstones in Australia, they can be big enough with like little bullets that hit yeah. you and I remember it was my sister's 30th birthday mm. uh, back in Ireland and I was standing under a tree and I rang her just to wish her happy birthday and I think mm-hmm. it was night time back home mm-hmm. and she's like oh how's everything going I was like oh it's great and like I was shivering <laughs> in the middle of nowhere so there's sort of moments like that where you're like <laughs> yeah yeah convincing like, yeah it's great it's <laughs> it's tough and as well it's also well I've chosen to do that mm-hmm. so yeah you know yeah, book exactly. up and get on with it, like exactly. <laughs> exactly. Because this is this is this thing, like like satisfaction from overcoming the adversity. Right? Yeah, this yeah. is this is what they, oh, yeah, I'm doing this. That's yeah, <laughs> exactly. And you do get a bit of a, I, you know, I think I got a bit of a kick out of it. And in sort of those sort of moments, going well, there's a part of me that comes alive in, mm. in those situations. Mm. Not always, but but I say probably not always. Like you know, if you're standing there shivering, you're freezing. Mm. It's not great. I suppose what I mean is that when you're out in the middle of nowhere and I remember it, it's happened to me a couple of times. I remember on the Atlantic trip, um, being underneath the boat, scraping barnacles. Mm-hmm. I, for whatever reason, I just remember it was a Tuesday mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm trying not to get myself hit by the boat as mm-hmm. it's getting tossed around the swell. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is living. This is, you know, <laughs> I'm, this is, you know, this, I'm, is, this, this is, this is having a go, you know, regardless of what happens. So I think, yeah, I, yeah, there's a part of that that I like, but that's part of doing trips, yeah. I think. Yeah. Okay, you mentioned Atlantic trip. Is is that the is that the is that now it's the right moment to talk about this? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, this is this is really the, the 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 story that I heard originally when we met when we when we said that, and it's like uh, I must admit it was surprise. Right here, here we come, and you're just coming with this completely like a outlandish, not outlandish, but like wow. It's like so you actually row a boat. Through the Atlantic Ocean, yeah, with your girlfriend at the time, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was. I was about to say it was one of those things. I don't know if it's if it's one of those things, but, um, yeah, it was actually after the Australian cycle. I I had been living in Australia for a while, and and I went traveling in different parts of the world after it. And mm-hmm. I was back in Ireland, um, maybe a year or so later, and there was a mate of mine was asking me about the Australian trip and we were having a few beers one night chatting mm-hmm. about it and mm-hmm. and Shane said to me afterwards, you know, he said, do you fancy rowing across the Atlantic? And just really casual, <laughs> real matter of fact. And I said, that's interesting. But for some reason, I was sort of intrigued by it. So mm-hmm. we started to look into it. And at the time, uh, there was only two people in Ireland who had ever done it before. So 
we tracked them down. They were Eamon and Peter Kavanagh, they're two brothers, and, and they had done it about seven years earlier. So we tracked them down, went out, met them, and um, fast forward maybe a couple of months, Shane decided for different reasons he, he wasn't going to do it. Mm-hmm. I had told my girlfriend, Tori, at the time, I told her about it, and her first reaction was, you're you're crazy and of course that's a that's a kind of understandable understandable reaction then i said oh wait now it's a race and there's teams from all over the world and 10 minutes later she was like oh i think i'd like to do it too so so (laughs) shane had pulled out so we said we'd we'd do it originally we were trying to get a team of four Mm -hmm. because typically you'll do it in two or four or as a solo Mm -hmm. um so it was a race that started in the canary islands um off the coast of, of West Africa and you go across the, mm-hmm. the Atlantic finish in the Caribbean so we mm-hmm. finished in Antigua mm-hmm. so it's about a little over two and a half thousand miles and it's a simple enough idea in terms of you have a 23 foot wooden rowing boat they're ocean rowing boats so mm-hmm. there's a little cabin in it where you can sleep yeah. you put everything you need for two to three months on it and you have a water desalinator to take yeah. the salt out of the seawater everything's powered with little 12 volt battery can you, can you describe the boat a little bit more because when you when you say like oh it's a rowing boat and then then most people have in their head like a boat like you go out fishing sure so yeah, that's, yeah, yeah that that boat is actually suited for conditions in the ocean yeah yeah okay so if you imagine um say a small sailboat so if you if you picture maybe a 20 23 foot sailboat and let's just cut the top let's take the cabin off let's take the the mm. mast everything off so you've your hull there and mm. you've got storage space below mm-hmm. so that's that's if you imagine that's the start of it <clears throat> then take a maybe a two-man tent and put mm-hmm. that at the end of it and that's your it's all plywood marine plywood yeah that's your cabin so you have a yeah. cabin in there where you can where you can sleep yeah. and then you've got two rowing stations so again just imagine <clears throat> excuse me imagine like a rowing machine in a gym yeah so it's a sliding seat setup. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you have two, um, you have two, two rowing stations, and, and even if you look at boats that people might see, people out, you know, in the Olympics mm-hmm. or, or world yeah. championships rowing, it's the same mechanism as in it's a sliding seat, yeah. um, and it's sculling. So you have an oar in, in both hands. Yeah. You have two oars. Yeah. Um, and then you've got it's a heavy boat, so you've probably got, you know, it's probably ton and a half, two ton, mm. you know, when it's fully loaded. Yes. So you've got. You've got, we were talking about this before we started, that you, you, you try and plan for, okay, what's our sort of passage plan? What do we need on board? So you think of all your food, all your gear, your navigation, which is actually mm-hmm. pretty, like it was a handheld GPS. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me, some charts, um, your water desalinator, a backup one in case that mm-hmm. stops working, which it did mm-hmm. when we were out on the trip. Then you've got things like um, your sea anchor, which is like a yeah. big parachute which yeah so it's 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 called like a drift drift anchor yeah it's 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 slightly different so you know the way you have little drogues a -hmm. drogue would look like a sort of a windsock that you might see Mm -hmm. at at an airport yeah um and you can use those you can throw those off the back of the boat sometimes they'll what they'll do is if you imagine if you're getting hit by big swell the Mm -hmm. the most dangerous thing for you being out there is that if you end side up on the swell yeah it kind of flip Mm -hmm. flip you over so you always want to be sort of perpendicular to the swell So in rough conditions where you're getting bounced around a bit, you might use um, a small drogue. You mm-hmm. might use just even a, a thick line of rope mm-hmm. that'll just help you keep your stern sort of yeah. in as well. Yeah. So a sea anchor then is is a much larger one where if the if the conditions change and you're getting pushed backwards, 
So you physically can't row into some conditions and the wind, yeah. if it changes, you're just getting pushed backwards. Yeah. So you throw a sea anchor out, which is, it's like a big parachute. And what it does is if you imagine you've got your boat in front of you here, you've mm -hmm. got a 40, 50 meter line coming off the, the edge of the sea anchor. So that goes into the water and it opens up. And when it opens up, water obviously rushes yeah. into it. So it just, it's like an anchor. It holds you because you can't use a traditional ground anchor because at times you've, three four five six kilometers you're probably i think it was yeah. up to about five kilometers deep so yeah you know you're you're you're, you're, <laughs> you're not using the anchor there this is interesting because this is pretty specialized design of the rowing sea going rowing boat yeah is there so how it start how it start how so how humanity came to developing rowing boat is it was it like a it started as a sport or is it, was it or is it rooted in some traditional fishing practices like how how it came to be you mean this style of boat or this, yeah or, this style yeah. but this type of boat like you, you know you wouldn't think like oh if if we if you go in the ocean you go with a you know sailboat or yeah. whatever so how it came to development of this type of the boat yeah it's a good question well i think it, if you go back to um it was two it was two Norwegian guys were actually the first to, to row across the Atlantic. This was in I might get my dates wrong, it was the late nineteenth century. Oh. Um it could have been it could have been our early twentieth century. Mm -hmm. Um George Samuelson, I think, and Ar Arbo or Harbo, I think was the second. Mm -hmm. I I can't remember, it's been a while since I looked at this, mm -hmm. but um they would have done it in an open rowing boat. So literally you know an open it was like an open dory i think style right. boat so this is like you know forget about what we did like yeah, what these yeah, guys did yeah. was you'd know shelter Pe so people were tougher back then. yeah yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> no, i totally agree um so they would have they would would have been the first people to do it and then it was 1965 or 66 when um a guy called shea blythe and john ridgeway mm -hmm. were the first people of sort of modern day times i believe mm -hmm. to actually do this and again they did it in an open dory where you know, you'd you'd row in two hour shifts. So like mm -hmm. you might if we were doing it, mm -hmm. so you might row two or three hours, mm -hmm. I'll rest, mm -hmm. then I row and you go. So you do that twenty four hours a day. So mm -hmm. you, you constantly want the boat moving. Mm -hmm. So like when they would have done it, I mean, you know, they would have probably just crawled under a bit of tarp and that was yeah. their shelter. Um yeah. and then I suppose in the late eighties, I think it was early early to mid eighties, um, you know, it was actually Shea Blythe himself who would have set up um, what was called, the, I think it was called the Challenge Business. Mm -hmm. And they organized the first transatlantic rowing race, which was okay. in 97. So uh, by that point, the evolution, I think, at design had yeah. gone, had moved on, that there was cabins were being built. The yeah. big thing with these boats is that they're designed to self-right. Yes. So if they flip, they, they'll oh, come yes. back. But there's a lot of instances and circumstances where they won't self-right. Mm -hmm. And that's where... You know, people have been killed doing mm. it. Um, fortunately, not. That's kind of a dangerous endeavor to, to to go through the Atlantic, even on a on a sailboat. <laughs> yeah, the rowing boat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of it. it you appreciate. It, I think for me, anyway, I can't speak for anyone else. It humbles me because I realize how insignificant I am in terms of Mother Nature calls the shots. So if she wants yeah. to, I remember a friend of mine said to me when we finished it said, oh, how does it feel like to have conquered the Atlantic? And I said... Uh, you didn't feel like you conquered anything. I didn't conquer anything. <laughs> I said, she she let us pass and she could take us yeah. at any moment if she wanted us. So um, so the, I suppose the design, to come back to your question, the design of the boats did evolve and it still, to this day, even has evolved mm. uh, even more with 
positioning of cabins has yeah. changed on some but you sort of answered the question that this 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 type of boat hasn't started and then evolved through the traditional practice that was aimed at people keeping people alive it was it was started as a sport slash adventure endeavor from the very beginning so those those type of boats never had like a practical use if you like or function yeah i think not really because i mean i think you're right like people would have used boats safety boats you know when like i mean if you go back to the likes of tom crean and and mm. the antarctic and and probably the greatest story of human survival that i've ever come mm -hmm. across was was their their voyage in, in in their little boats when when they got trapped with the ice so i mean like that's there was it was probably never the smartest way to travel but mm. i think i suppose maybe it's human nature we've a, we've mm -hmm. a curiosity to right how how can things be maybe pushed or or you know if you take something like i don't know take like an iron man or a triathlon mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. people swam before people ran before people cycled before mm -hmm. but you know originally people cycled to get from a to b they yeah. didn't do it to necessarily race each yeah. other and yeah exactly you know all that stuff evolves so um it was maybe human nature right right interesting okay so you so this is we have a picture of the boats right mm -hmm. and you have this idea that you're gonna you're gonna so what went into the preparation of the of the entire Yeah, trip? there was a lot, I suppose. We were we were fortunate in that Eamon and Peter agreed to let us use their boat that they had used, mm -hmm. you know, seven or eight years beforehand. It needed a bit of work and modification and updating mm -hmm. and stuff, but um, that was a real help. And we were, a large part of our prep was, because a lot of people were telling us we were crazy and we were stupid and we were going to get killed. There's, there's, there's always, you know, yeah. you always get that. And I, look, I can, to, an, to a point, I can understand... Because, uh, you know, up to this point, I'd never rowed before. Now, rowing mm -hmm. isn't, you know, it's a relatively straightforward thing to pick up. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the more I've done these sort of things, are, are not even just these things, even in life, if someone says, ah, you're crazy or that's mad or stupid or whatever, I nearly, I nearly, that nearly serves for me as a good compass point to go, I could be onto something I here. Could be, you oh, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's a good <laughs> so um, I think if someone says that, it's like, oh, maybe maybe i'm sort of onto something here um but um so yeah like we would have spent a lot of time with Eamon and peter and just just learning from them um mm. trying to absorb as much as we could to learn from their experience um then practically speaking we would have done you know a sea survival course first mm. aid at sea okay we did our our, our shore-based yacht master course which was navigate you know learning how to navigate using the stars mm -hmm. so it was a really good experience because you had to sort of plan for you've to you've to sort of take full ownership for when you leave out there even though it was a race and in our year there was 26 boats in the race but within pretty much within a day you don't see anyone else because everyone's yeah. going at a slightly different speed a different heading and when you're so low in the water you can only see for oh, yeah. a mile or two oh, yeah. so it was um i remember w the boat was down in arklow and we were living in dublin coming up and down to train and, mm -hmm. and then we um got to a point probably about six seven months before we were due to leave and and we just needed to get the boat up to dublin but we didn't have a trailer mm -hmm. and like we were putting every penny we had into this and we were obviously mm -hmm. working full time so we didn't have a trailer we couldn't afford to buy one at the time so we said look we just row it up um, and so it was a 24-hour trip <laughs> to row it up from arklow and it was really when i think about it now i think psychologically and even emotionally that was the cutting of the umbilical cord because mm -hmm. up to then, every time we went down to Arklow, 
you know, Eamon might say, okay, we're going to stay in the river today or it's a bit rough or we're going to head out to sea mm-hmm. or we're not. So we didn't plan as much ourselves. Whereas for this, mm-hmm. and Eamon was brilliant because he said, you know, I want you to put together a passage plan. How are you, you know, what do you need to bring? You think of everything. And even when we took the charts out, I'll never forget there's, I don't know, is it maybe 10, 15 miles north of Arklow? Um, there's a rock called Wolf Rock. And depending on when you go, sometimes it's exposed on the tide. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not, obviously okay. depending on the timing of the tide. Um, so it was just things like that. He said, I want you guys to plan this. Yeah. Which we did. And we, I remember we, uh, we were getting onto the boat and loading the gear up. And Eamon says to me, he says, oh yeah, he said, um, if you get into any trouble, you know, over the next, whatever, 24 hours and you have to call for help, he says, you can forget about using this boat in the Atlantic. He says, if you can't navigate this stretch and make your way up to Dublin, he yeah. says, you've no business being in the Atlantic. <laughs> so I remember my, my yeah. heart sort of sunk when he said it and I was yeah. like, actually, no, take a minute, uh-huh. take a breath. Uh-huh. He's absolutely right. Yes. And and just own it and, and make sure you own mm-hmm. it. So, you know, we... we, we I remember, you know, we we'd fought, we'd no problems, and but we got up the next day, and I was absolutely knackered. Mm-hmm. And it was only after twenty four hours, and like you've got the excitement and the buzz of doing this yeah. because oh, it's our first time, and you're rowing at night time. And, and were you rowing also in two hour shifts? Yeah, we at mm-hmm. the start we rowed together, and then we played around with shifts. And and okay. uh, but when we got into into uh, Dunleer, we were very lucky. Um, the lovely man there called Hal Bleakley. And he had uh, allowed, he'd given us a little berthing spot in, in mm-hmm. Dunleary in the marina mm-hmm. for the couple of months um, oh. and, and, you know, at, at no cost, which was great. So mm-hmm. when we rode in there and, and got off and I was like, I'm pretty shattered. This is going to be one <laughs> long, <is> long <laughs> race. So. And again, where where the race was, when the, where the race was starting? So it started in the Canary Islands. Lagomera okay. is one of the Canary Islands. How did you get the boat to Canary Islands? So we shipped it out. Originally, okay. we had ideas of, oh, God, could we even row it out? And we were like... Yeah, that was, that, yeah. Was, that was in the back of my head. I was yeah. like, you also row it out in there. <laughs> yeah, it, it's... it's um, it's strange because like it you the time flies really by and in trips that I've organized since then it's always it's a bit like nearly cramming for an exam you're doing mm-hmm. as much as you can you're trying to get maybe a couple of corporate sponsors to help mm-hmm. with the funding mm-hmm. we were doing this for we we were doing it for a charity to raise money for concerns so mm-hmm. you, you're trying to organize different events and stuff so it's yeah. a lot it's really full on and it, in a way it's nearly like when we shipped the boat out and we spent maybe two weeks out there beforehand mm-hmm. just with sort of last minute prep and stuff but it's nearly a relief to go finally, you know, I know. a year and a half later. I know this is this is what you what you what you often hear when you when you reading books about war, that that the worst is this anticipation for soldiers going to combat and and this fear and all that. Right, yeah. And once the gates open or whatever that is, and even if you if you if you read it <clears> about the D Day, once they in and you're going, it's it's a sense of relief. Yeah, it's a sense of like yeah, yeah. It's, we're in it now. It, it's we're in it now. Now it's finally happening. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. Because I remember thinking when we rode out to the, all the teams were called out individually and we're sort of bobbing around the harbour and mm-hmm. a gun goes off and that's the start line. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to Tori uh, before we left, we're just sort of all sort of bobbing around. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I said, are you nervous? She's like, no, not really. Look at you. And I was like, no, I was just excited just to get going. And yeah, finally. it was also nice to be around people as in the other teams who had gone through a lot of what we went through. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the hardest things was my family's reaction to it, which was like, completely understood. They were yeah. just really against it. And um, and I get that. I probably get it more now, being a few years older. But it was lovely to be around people who, who 
they were committed to this as well. And I can remember a conversation I had with uh, with Garod. Garod Tawi was an Irish guy who was mm-hmm. in another boat doing it beforehand. And, and it was weird the way sometimes you'd, you'd come across people not just criticizing you, but mm-hmm. there was there was nearly a bit of venom in it or anger. And it's yeah. like, you know, and I've, I've had more of this in, in subsequent trips. But I remember Gag said to me one day, he was like, like, at what point do people lose the ability to dream or to, try stuff and mm-hmm. just have a go like and yeah. it's it was lovely just to be around you're nearly around i suppose for want of a better word fellow dreamers mm-hmm. um and that was that was nice but but once you get going then it's it's uh yeah it's excitement and you know the first couple of like i mean i was seasick after three hours and i hadn't mm-hmm. been seasick at all in training mm-hmm. um and again i was that, lucky that, with, that, that, hap- that, oh, sometimes ha- that sometimes happened we were really lucky like i mean Eamon and peter said it to us that in the past teams of you know someone gets sick mm-hmm. they pull the plug they panic and oh i'm done i can't do it mm-hmm. so we were lucky with with the lads because they said look if it does happen you might be sick for a few days but it'll pass mm-hmm. and like those first i think it was about two days where it was just you know getting sick rowing yeah trying to get sleep sick it was horrible but it did pass and we knew, yeah you know we knew it would um it's fascinating because like again like we we had a quick chat before before we started recording i was saying that in a, again a few episodes back um uh thomas mcintyre was uh, in a podcast who was cycled through the united states and i was cycling through the through africa and the, you know the the similarities what you're what you're saying is like all going on the, like the obstacles like the family not being happy and you're doing that and then you think like yeah i'm onto something it's like it's it's fascinating that that is the same same pattern kind of yeah yeah in, in, in that. and i suppose it's tough like i mean i know which like if i think of the family side where it's probably not nor like i remember i'll never forget i um i asked family and friends and tori did the same for me to mm-hmm. to um put together a goodie bag of letters that we were going to bring mm-hmm. so i organized it for tori she did the same for me and the premise of it was put out like if i asked tori's family and friends i said write in it whatever you want but the idea is that this is going to be a pick me up so if tori's having a bad day i'll give her one of the letters so you can say whatever you want in it and I had, um, I read, sort of, I looked at all of her letters, oh, God, that's a really good one, or that could mm-hmm. be really good if we mm-hmm. had a really bad day. And I remember I was having a bad day once. Oh, right. and, did you, did you uh, read all those letters? I But I would have read her ones before. Like, so I, I, wouldn't, oh, okay. have, I wouldn't have read my ones. Like, yeah, yeah, so yeah, she yeah, would but, have had mine. But you, but you knew what, what she had in her. Yeah, I sort of thought, well, God, if she's really having a bad day, this could be a great letter. Or oh, whatever. Okay, okay. So you you had, you had get to choose which one is it for each exactly. occasion. How bad are you today? It's, you know, eight out of ten. <laughs> this letter for you. Okay, we're going for the big one. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But um, my dad did a letter and... We subsequently wrote a book about this trip and I remember mm-hmm. said, I said, Dad, I'd like to put that letter in the book mm-hmm. because when we wrote the book, we tried to give as much as you can through a book to hopefully create an experience that someone feels like they're on the trip with mm-hmm. you. And I had a couple of people say to me, someone goes, God, I felt like I was out there, mm-hmm. which is exactly what we'd hoped Great. we could do as much as you can, mm-hmm. you know, through a book. And the letter, um, was ju- it was just so touching and I read it and it was very uplifting and I broke down in tears and I read mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I could get a sense how it was difficult for my family because it's not normal for them maybe to support a child yeah. going out doing something that's potentially quite dangerous. Rowing um, through the Atlantic. <laughs> yeah, and I, I suppose I understood that. So the family thing is hard. And I, I remember saying to my, my, my parents at the time, I said, look, I would, 
I would give my life for you, hmm. but I can't live it for you. You know, and that's that's, that's, a, that's a there's a, there's a difference good, there. Good, that's uh, that's and I I think nice, and that's a nice nice quote, nice sentence. Yeah, it's it's um. I don't know. I think I hope. I mean, like I I'm, I got married recently. I hope, um, you know, if Colette and I have kids, that I hope I I sort of allow them the the, mm-hmm. the space and the freedom and the confidence to just go after whatever it is they want. And I'm sure taking <laughs> from I know that it's going to come back at yeah. some point. I I heard that the, when when you're becoming a father, it's like a, there are physical changes in your brain you kind of like physically stuff is changing in the brain it functions differently so <laughs> yeah well it's interesting because the brain is so malleable that you know i was just saying to you before and i just finished a, a psychology degree and um so interesting actually learning more about the brain mm-hmm. and, and how malleable it is and how mm-hmm. we can form new neural pathways in our brain and and you know when you yeah. talk about people changing habits and trying mm-hmm. to change behaviors and and mm-hmm you know, the brain has these synapses and these connections mm. between neurons in our brain that, that you can form new ones. So yeah. the brain is so malleable. It's, it's, um, I've no doubt potentially, you know, when, when, right. when a father and probably even more so a mother mm. <laughs> gives birth, yeah. there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of things going on there. Yeah. So we'll just wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> Watch this space. Exactly. But yeah, I know I can, I can definitely understand that. And, and in subsequent trips where I've done them with, you know, people who have kids mm-hmm. and the kids are at a school going age mm-hmm. where, you know, they can hear things from other people about their dad, say, who's going mm-hmm. away in a trip. Yeah. Oh, he's crazy and he's going to get killed. And, you know, yeah. the kids might only be six, seven, eight, old enough mm-hmm. to know what's happening, um, but not necessarily, you know, old enough to maybe have a, a full sense of how careful yeah. dad is being yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So, so, t- t- so this is a good, a good one because I have a question now for you. There was a recently, and I don't remember her name. I, I probably butchered the story, but I, but I give a sentiment. There was a, there was a guy who was uh, climbing mountains. I don't remember whether it was Mount Everest or whatever it was. Right. And he got killed. Right. And he got killed and he was, he was known for, for, for these, you know, adventure, extreme, trips in the mountains and so sure. on and so on and uh and obviously he he you know ran out of luck um unfortunately passed away while doing this and he left young wife and two young children right and obviously there was a lot of comments saying like oh he shouldn't be doing that he's responsible now for the kids she he shouldn't be you know go out go after that he should like and um to be honest, I don't know. I I don't I I'm, I'm, I wonder what you think about it because one one part is like, well, yes, you took on this big responsibility and you're mm-hmm. responsible and you need to provide you know for that family and so on and so on. On the other hand, obviously, someone who does things like that, this is so deep mm-hmm. in his soul, for want of a better description, mm-hmm. that like, why would like is it okay? For him to either not have the family because he does this thing, or give up something that clearly fuels him and 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 drives him mm. because of I I I kind of can understand both sure both yeah. things. What's your what's your take on that? It's a really good question, and I think um, I think I suppose that I'd premise this by saying that everyone like life is like we all know life is so precious and it can be taken away from us in an instant. So I think we all have our own 
choice as to how we live life mm. and and i don't think how i choose to live my life or how you, you you choose to live your life they might be different i don't think there's a right or wrong but mm. i suppose my thought on that would be if we if we play that out actually what you've described and if we talk about that climber do you know that do you know that climber? no I, I can't I, I, that? I, I, I can't remember the the name i i don't know i haven't i i mean i suppose climbers die yeah regularly yeah. but yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah unfortunately no i thought that because there was kind of like a big big deal out of that and I obviously yeah don't yeah remember. anyway um but if, if you t- if you sort of play that out so if we take um i'll give you i'll give you a real live example mm-hmm. which is a teammate of mine a good very good friend of mine kevin valley mm-hmm. kevin has done kevin is mid 50s now and he's mm-hmm. done adventures all over the world and he did the trip that we, we might chat about later on through the arctic or the first mm-hmm. time i was up there and kevin has faced this question and he you know i, I can tell you sort of his insight on it as well mm-hmm. in a second but i can look at kevin i can go this feeds his soul He's an mm-hmm. absolutely doting father. He loves his two girls to bits and his wife. And this brings him alive. And it's part of who he is as a human being. Yeah. So if I think of myself, I would be similar in that I, this there's a part of my soul just comes alive being out here. And it doesn't have to be in the Atlantic. It could be, you know, hiking up in the Dublin mountains or something. Mm-hmm. You know, like the I challenge, could, the adventure. I just love being outside. And there's a part of me that just, it's just, it's important. I think I'm a... I think I'm a better human being mm-hmm. when I'm incorporating this into my life. So if we play this out and let's say, I'll use me as an example. So let's say if I did have kids mm-hmm. right now, and I appreciate when you have kids, things probably change. It Like it's probably, a, it's hard to do a what if. Yeah. But if I decide to never do any of that sort of stuff mm-hmm. again, I might decide to do that anyway. I might just mm-hmm. go, right, I have enough of that and move on mm-hmm. and that's all cool. But let's say if I decide, oh, I have kids and oh, I can't be doing that. and That's mm-hmm. too risky. And there's a part of my soul, there's a part of my spirit that just, it's just, just it's gone. Mm -hmm. So how am I with my kids? Am I, you know, the best version of myself around my kids? Because I've let that part of me die out completely. You don't want to become like a bitter jerk in the, in the house, in the family, because you cannot do all these things. And then do you, do you potentially then go, well, even it could be at a subconscious level, am I now harboring elements of resentment if i'm saying to myself well i'm not going to do that because and for Mm -hmm. i don't want to put myself at risk Mm -hmm. and my kids and Mm -hmm. my wife etc and that may be one option and that Mm -hmm. can be you know that could be okay it could be fine Mm -hmm. i would argue in that situation your kids your wife the people you're around they're not seeing the full you they're not seeing the best of you if you go around the other way then and you Mm -hmm. look at someone maybe who who does keep pursuing Mm -hmm. that to whatever extent and when they're with their kids and when they're with their family, they're, you know, they're their full selves and they're, they're yeah. giving the kids everything. And if you ask me, I'd much prefer to have 50 years or 60 years at that versus mm-hmm. 90 years of, yeah. ah, well, I, I let that one go and I, I didn't go after that element. Mm-hmm. And does it come at risk if someone's a mountain climber? Yeah, absolutely. But I think, mm-hmm. I think if, you know, I know Kevin has said this to me before that he said, I would be a hypocrite if I'm saying to my daughters, go out, follow your dreams, live the life you want. And if I really want to do these things and I'm not, Mm -hmm. I'm sort of, I'm a complete hypocrite. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a choice everyone has to make. Um, But that would be my take on it. You Mm -hmm. know, my perspective. I don't think there's a right or wrong. And I think... Oh, yeah, of course. Like every, every circumstances and everything is different. Yeah. Like each, each case is different. Okay, what's the book? What's the title of the book and where, where listeners can, can Yeah, so the book, we, we published it in Ireland. Um, that's good a few years ago now. Uh, it was called uh, Little Lady, One Man, Big Ocean. So that was published 
here in Ireland. And then when I moved, I lived, spent six, seven years in Canada. Mm-hmm. It was published in Canada under the title Crossing the Swell. So okay. that's still the that's first... The same book. Same book, yeah. So okay. the first book, the Irish version, sort of we did one print run and sold out and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Crossing the Swell is still, you can get it on Amazon and stuff. So it's okay. still, still there. Okay. Yeah, we yeah. put the link to the book yeah, in, yeah, the, yeah. in the show cool. notes. All right, very good, very good. Okay, so so then uh, I'm sure there was like a plenty of, of uh, exciting stories while you were... How long, how long again? How long? it took to and the to Atlantic yeah it was 85 days 85 days yeah so right. we had sort of originally quicker than I thought, I was, I thought well to be honest we had originally thought we thought we were it's aiming nice. for around 60 we thought based oh, on really? how fast we row okay we thought if we get semi lucky or if we don't get too battered by the weather mm-hmm. hopefully maybe about two months excuse me but um yeah we did usually it, you, you from about June to October it's now probably June to December is the hurricane season in the mm-hmm. mid-Atlantic. Climate change has, cha- has changed the patterns, mm. you know, relatively significantly now at this stage. Mm. So you get storms out of season or, or out of the season has changed nearly. Yeah. So you typically get about 12 to 15 tropical storms throughout the Atlantic in that part. So that's tropical storm is sort of one grade down from a hurricane. Mm-hmm. And out of those, you might get six seven might be you know six to eight five to eight so mm-hmm. it would go on to be full-blown hurricanes the year that we did it there was 31 tropical storms um and i think there was 14 or 15 hurricanes so it was um in one way when you're out in an ocean and you get 30 40 foot swell that's what happens out in an ocean like it's not abnormal mm-hmm. yeah um and you'll get storms and stuff and like if we experience storms which we have obviously in ireland mm-hmm. in recent times we're on dry land. We're not out in an ocean. And it's mm. obviously very different. But that's what happened. So we had hope for 60 days. We got a lot of bad storms. And like I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. there was 26 boats in this race and nine went down at sea. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. it was a rough, it was a, a it was a tough year. Um, mm-hmm. And we just... By went down, you mean like uh, what happened to people? Um, were, they, were they killed? or they Mixture, nobody died. Thanks be to God. Oh. No, nobody died. Um, so boats capsized. Some boats mm-hmm. literally got picked up by waves and smashed to pieces um oh. so it was uh yeah it was it was various different a couple of the boats were actually really close to antigua uh, mm-hmm. at the finish when this happened um there was the, actually the boat i mentioned the other irish team um they were the first boat actually they went down and i think we were 30 or 40 days into it um wow. and they their boat got picked up by a wave and it flipped but it, it literally it the cabin came sort of crashed onto the surface of the water and just smashed up into pieces and is that just a bad luck or is it like a mistake of uh, Uh, operators it's it's, it's luck you you need you need a lot of luck i mean the two guys uh gags and curon extremely skilled i mean grode was a former world champion rower and he's been to a couple of olympics like really really good guys they're Mm -hmm. solid knew what they were doing um just a little bit unlucky They, they um the way their boat was actually built um the they had a drogue out which i think was perfectly you know normal and, and, and the thing to, to do in the situation they were in i remember talking to them afterwards about it um and just by virtue of where the drogue was connected to the sides of the cabin i think it might have been a slightly weaker point but i mean the boat was built okay. so it just mean when when it pulled on on, okay. on the boat as it, as it came over mm-hmm. it was pulling so they the had this point. like like oh I would do this thing differently and maybe we we wouldn't end up the way Well, we I think up. I think to be fair for them, um, you know, none of us are boat builders, so mm-hmm. you wouldn't be necessarily aware of that. I think um no, they, they didn't really do anything wrong per se. I think you, sometimes 
you know, I'll give you another example of one of the boats, a couple of the boats capsized, but they had hatches open. Mm-hmm. So if water floods into the hatches, if you have the hatch in the cabin open, yeah. which you often would because it'd be very hot, mm-hmm. um, and water goes into it, then the boat isn't going to sell fright. So when yeah. you get tired, and it's easy, I suppose. You make the little you, mistakes. You make little mistakes, and they're understandable because you're hallucinating with sleep deprivation, you're mm-hmm. tired, you're sore, you've been out there for months. You know, you're you're pretty banged up at times. Um, mm-hmm. And I think when it's easier, it's easy now, maybe in the comfort of where we're sitting, to go, I wonder should someone have done something different? But when you're out there, it is tough to sometimes make the right calls. And I remember with that mm-hmm. particular thing, as we got closer to Antigua, and we we had a satellite phone with us, so we were getting yeah. text messages, and we knew boats mm-hmm. had gone down. Yeah. Um, and I remember we just had this agreement that if you want to, if you're in the cabin, the hatch stays closed. And if you were in it with the hatch closed, it was like a sauna. Mm-hmm. So when you finish your shift and you maybe just want to lie down, we said, okay, you can lie down on deck if you need to, but the hatch has to stay closed. Now you could, yeah, you knew in certain, yeah, you knew if yeah. conditions were fine, but if it was just anyway picking yeah. up a bit. Um, because I suppose we were benefiting from maybe having yeah. heard about what other people happened. So yeah. it's just things like that. If you make the best decision you can, and if you try and keep making, just err on the side of caution. Because yeah. like outside looking in, it can appear crazy and like, you guys are wild and you're nuts and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're actually in it, you're trying to make a series of good decisions. Oh, you're very, very... You're, you're uh, more, kind of you're, and you realize how exposed and how vulnerable you are. Yeah. Um. So there was definitely, yeah, there was a few hairy moments, all right, when, you know, we'd, we'd one instance at nighttime. And I can still remember we had a little compass in front of us. So, mm-hmm. and there was a little light over it. And when you're rowing, you can't keep it on a certain heading. So you're just, you're trying to keep it maybe in a bit of a, a section. Yeah. And by and large, if the, if the ocean is pushing you whatever way, that's the way you're going. Yeah. Um, in a rowing boat. Um, so we, um, it was really rough and it was dark and no moon. And I, I remember it was raining. I, I was rowing. I, I was struggling even just to see. So the compass was only maybe a foot or two in front of me. And it was wild and there was waves coming from different sides. And I remember that night... There's very few nights that we did. Sometimes if you're getting pushed backwards, you just have to throw the sea anchor out and say, look, we can't we can't mm-hmm. row into that. But your tolerance level for rough weather improved as you went on. So what week one, what might have seemed crazy yeah, was fine the, 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 two yeah, or three right. weeks into it. <laughs> but this night in particular, it was just, I said, God, this is this is just madness. So we battened down the hatches and, mm-hmm. you know, so you're getting tossed around like I, I said to someone recently it's like being in a, a washing machine but i've never been in a washing machine so yeah. <laughs> i don't i don't know what, it's what i imagine it would be like so <laughs> we um yeah that was that was a night where i thought just get through, please let us get through tonight and mm-hmm. i'll be very happy right so there was a few a few moments where yeah things are got a bit have you guys come across any wildlife any encounters with the with the marine wildlife whales or yeah we did not uh, i think we probably thought we'd have more we had a couple of um couple of mako sharks um very sort of brief sort of they were beside Mm -hmm. the boat for a little bit Mm -hmm. um we had about three days or four days before the end a mate of mine had given me uh, a little book mm-hmm. with sort of pictures of marine life and mm-hmm. it just might be sort of cool if you see stuff, mm-hmm. you might know what it is. Mm-hmm. And about three days or so before the end, I, I was rowing and really calm conditions and I sort of look over, I'd say only eight, seven or eight feet uh, off to the side of the boat and I see this massive whale and it was just starting to sort of surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a sperm whale, I think. Mm-hmm. 
and it just came right up and I was it was bigger than the boat yeah huge and shouted at Tori two of us came out and we were just like oh my god this is amazing <laughs> and we just stood there for I think it was probably only a couple of minutes and it just drifted back behind us mm-hmm. came across the swell and just disappeared again and we were just we were so mesmerized by it I didn't take one picture of it yeah <laughs> I remember yeah. Th- which in a way I thought was sort of nice because you yeah. You stayed in the moment. You focus on yes, exactly. You experience rather yeah. than document. Um <laughs> and it was um ah oh, that like that was really that was pretty cool. Um we saw uh sea sea turtle as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you had a you had different different bits of marine life. But. Yeah. And you said that you're you were getting under the boat and kind of scraping off uh, the, the what's the name of the, the, barnacles. the barnacles. Yeah, yeah. It's um so wh- with with stuff like this you'll get because we're moving so slow. Um, so we had anti-foul, which mm-hmm. you'd put on the bottom of the boat to yeah. sort of stop barnacles from growing. Now, if you're around the coast, you know, you could have that on. That could do you for a season. Whereas out there, um, I, I'm no expert, but I remember talking to someone about this. And the foul is quite strong. So you'll get um, barnacles will just attach themselves to yeah. the boat and you're moving at quite slow speeds. And we knew this could happen. And I think the first week or two, I would have gone under a few times to check and there was nothing mm-hmm. there. And then as we got on, I'd say we were about four weeks, maybe five weeks in, and we were going really slow, and it was killing us, because you'd be like, you know, you, you might be doing a knot, you know, a mile, mile and a half an hour, and it's yeah. like, it's it's backbreaking stuff at times. And um, we sort of assumed it was because of the, the rough weather, and sometimes hard yeah. to even catch an oar, and, yeah. and it probably was to a point, but um, Tori noticed... Uh, as the boat was bobbing around, these like it was like big wigs of barnacles mm-hmm. attached to the side of the boat. Mm-hmm. So I went underneath, but um, <laughs> uh, we we had gotten two text messages a couple of days beforehand about shark attacks, mm-hmm. and then you know, boat twenty eight shark attack crew. Okay, how how did shark attack the boat? So we at the time I that was as much info as I had. So I thought, oh, the, where the people were in the water. No, they were on the boat, but like sometimes sharks would get curious and they might oh. come a bit closer and they might sort of ram the boat. Okay. Um, and this had happened apparently with one team, and they breached one of the one of the uh, one of the sort of uh, sections underneath the hu- in the hull. Oh. But they were they, they they were all fine. But that's it's I mean I, I'm no shark expert, that's but surprising. That's um, I I haven't you know I haven't mm-hmm. uh, I that's what what I knew at the time was right. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I remember I I harnessed my I tied a rope around my leg. And I harnessed it onto the boat. And I, mm-hmm. you know, so you just take a deep breath, scrape, come back up, yeah. take another breath. I said, Tori, if you see anything with a fin, just pull the rope. Mm-hmm. So the first, I'd say, five, ten minutes of this, all I'm thinking of and all I have in my head is the Jaws music. And, uh, <laughs> da, 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 you know? and do you remember in, that, in Jaws when, when, the, um, when, when he was coming and you'd see fish scurrying away yeah, really fast? Yeah. And of course, underneath the boat, there was loads of fish coming in, scurrying, yes. picking off the barnacles and going yeah. away. So I'm like, I'm yeah. paranoid. <laughs> after about, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, mm. that was grand. That was okay. And um, I'd say five, 10 minutes later, Tori pulls the rope. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I nearly soiled myself. I was like, oh shit. Jumped up on the boat, on the deck. And I was like, where is it? Where is it? I'm out of breath at this stage. Mm-hmm. And she points to a zebra fish that I'd say was about that size, like six inches. <laughs> And she was like, oh, I, there's no shark. I just wanted you to see the pretty <laughs> fish. I swear to God, I nearly threw her in after me. Um, oh God. So with the barnacles, like, it was amazing, though. That was a bit of a, nearly a bit of a turning point mm-hmm. for us, that our speeds improved. Mm-hmm. Like, I'd say they nearly doubled because the barnacles yeah. were creating a huge drag. Yeah. 
and like like even even if you see like a sailing racing yacht sailing racing yachts there's this is the same problem yeah so yeah they, yeah they yeah, also yeah. need to kind of make sure they maintain the absolutely the yeah 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 right, so right. it was um yeah that was and then from then on i'd go under maybe every week or 10 days just to scrape off stuff yeah. but um that was that was a fairly all you know you put all you you know people talk about the extra the marginal gains and the extra one mm. percent mm. and all that i mean that was that was a pretty big one for us <laughs> it was 10 percent. was about 10 percent. <laughs> and what place did you guys finished we finished um we were 13th i think mm -hmm. out of 26 oh. um and i, I someone yeah. asked me that not too long ago and i and they're like oh that's not bad mm -hmm. and we had like you know did it really mattered at all it, at it, the end it didn't it really i mean nobody like did you had this like damn it i thought we we're gonna be third at least no what was it like doesn't matter i'm just happy we're here we it's interesting because actually at the start like i mean there was you know there was rowers in this race some of them had won like james cracklin was a row he'd run like two or three gold medals in the olympic mm -hmm. games so we knew there was world champ was some high class rowers in this. Mm. Now that's all well and good if you're on a river. It's a bit different if you're on an ocean. Yeah, and it's and it's eighty days. Yeah. Now that being said, obviously if someone has rowed to that level all their life, it's gonna help. So originally all we wanted to do was to finish as high up as we could. Mm -hmm. And I'd say a couple of weeks into it, um, I remember I think it was Tori's aunt was looking at other teams' mm -hmm. websites and mm -hmm. she'd sent a couple of texts through saying, Oh yeah, people don't even care about the race now. Everyone's really struggling and it's mm -hmm. like, holy shit. Mm -hmm. And I that changed. I was like, for me, even leading up to that point, it was like, Yeah, we want to finish this high up, but it's actually sort of irrelevant. Like yes. you know, if you put twenty people in a room and you know, oh, they've all rode across the Atlantic. It's very few people who probably ask you, you know, where'd you mm. come? But yeah. we probably, to be fair, to be honest with you, we probably came 13th because we finished ahead of a few teams, but nine of the teams went down at sea. So, <laughs> so we, I suppose we leapfrogged them anyway. Oh, yeah, that also counts. <laughs> By virtue <laughs> of the fact that we finished. Very good, very good. Um, Paul, listen, uh, when when I heard that story for the first time, you told told us at the time about an incident or on the incident on the, the story would you would you be comfortable saying that is do you think it's a, it's a right yeah yeah about the other person yeah 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 so um we were i think about i'm gonna say about 50 60 days into it and when you when you're on a trip like this you know it doesn't even have to be a trip this long but with, with sleep deprivation you can hallucinate um and you'll you'll see things sometimes. i'm surprised that you're in a in a state of sleep deprivation because you have these two hours so so it's it's you have your how much 12 well, you've hours. Tw yeah i i think the reason the re and I, it's funny because i would have thought the same beforehand and i think the reason is is that if you finish a two-hour shift you're not really sleeping you're a you might not be sleeping but so say you finish you might be preparing food or mm. you're trying to fix something or you're doing something right um but at night time, all you want to do is sleep. But by the time you maybe, you know, if, if you get out of clothes, if you're, you know, if you're soaking wet, maybe take the shorts off, you might get a quick bit of food. And then you, it might take you 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the other end just mm -hmm. to wake up and get yourself ready. And off you go. You probably get maybe an hour and a half. So because of that, you're you're not really getting into a deep recovery sleep. Yes. It's very, um, you know, you're, you're, yes. you're, you're not fully recharging yourself. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, um, I think we were... You're not in a dream sleep. Yeah, you're not getting into... You know, you have what they call rapid eye movement or mm -hmm, REM sleep, mm -hmm. 
which is where your brain is actually still quite active yes. and you're reorganizing what you've mm-hmm. you know the brain is like filing stuff and sorting mm-hmm. stuff yeah. and when you when you sleep as well you've um um, a cerebral spinal fluid is released in your brain and it's mm-hmm. like a it's like a sort of a dishwasher mm-hmm. and it's washing away a lot of the mm-hmm. toxins and stuff mm-hmm. that build up in your brain during the, during the day so you've got your your cognitive or your mental regeneration mm-hmm. and you've got your physical regeneration mm-hmm. which is that deeper slower way of sleep yeah. so because of um we weren't getting into that and during the night time so you'd have three shifts each during, and you had about 12 hours of darkness mm-hmm. it, you know get dark at maybe sort of six seven ish mm-hmm. um so the more the night went on i always found it that you know if you had that last shift it was always the hardest mm-hmm. I, I found the graveyard shift we used to call it mm-hmm. so we were about f- i think it was about four in the morning one night and it wasn't particularly rough um i my seven tory swapped uh you know and, and during the night when you swap it you come into the cabin and the other person is going out and how mm-hmm. was it i was grand yeah yeah See in two hours. There isn't yeah. a whole lot of conversation because yeah. you're yeah. dog tired. Yeah. So I was about twenty minutes into a shift, and um, I so it's, it was dark. It was dark. Yeah, yeah. It was very dark. It, was, and it wasn't cold. It wasn't cold. I'm it just was trying to picture. Yeah, the, yeah. If you if you imagine, it was um, it was dark, but there was a bit. I mean, you get some amazing like stars, and uh, you're yeah. looking up at like. Like because you don't have a galaxy. light pollution, exactly. so you actually see what you're supposed to see. Oh, it's phenomenal. So you'd, you'd have some light from that. Mm-hmm. And it was a calm enough night. It was a warm enough night as well. And it wasn't yeah. particularly rough. And, you know, at night time, you sort of get into this zone as well where sometimes you might be listening to an audiobook or music mm-hmm. or sometimes nothing. And you're just, you're just, you hear the sounds of the, the oars to the mm-hmm. water. And as you yeah. come through, you hear the oar locks and, and yeah. the gates just locking. So um, that's really, it was all fine. And I just got this eerie feeling out of nowhere that someone was standing behind me. And I got these pins and needles coming down my back mm-hmm. down my arms and just like oh god that's a bit strange we all so, know that yeah you know I, I i was rowing away and and you know as most people will will know or just you might necessarily think it obviously you've got your back to where you're going mm-hmm. when you're rowing so i looked over my right shoulder as strange as this sounds sort of expecting to see someone i look over i don't see anyone then i look over my left shoulder and i just see the lower body of a man so black pants black dress shoes probably two feet away from me and the reason i mentioned hallucinating leading into this is i knew sometimes i was hallucinating and i was mm-hmm. seeing things that were not real mm-hmm. um, so you had this sort of conscious of like okay i know what's happening yeah, like like i remember seeing a dog on a skateboard one mm-hmm. day coming across the swell in front of me mm-hmm. i was like i'm pretty sure i'm not seeing a dog on a skateboard out here mm-hmm. that's not real um and your mind's playing tricks on you so i i this was different though. I looked at this and, and like I nearly shat myself. I was like, oh my God. I, like, So I, I look back and then I look away again and it's gone. And I start thinking, it's black. It's the Grim Reaper. We're going to go down because other boats have gone down. Okay, if we do, I should die first because I'm older. It's probably not fair. You know, and Tori, oh, what are my parents going to say? And you've all these crazy thoughts mm. running through your mind. So I finished the two-hour shift, go in, Tori's like how was it and I said you're not going to believe this and I told her what happened and to this day I will never forget Mm -hmm. the sight of her face was just in front Mm -hmm. of the electronic control panel Uh and the colour just washed off her face and she was like I don't believe you and I was like what she's like I had the exact same experience two hours earlier but (laughs) she she didn't tell me she was like I didn't want to freak you out I was obviously completely happy to completely freak her out (laughs) and um 
we sort of chatted about it and, and she went on and, and she did her shift and, and it was it, it was something I sort of got comfortable with I thought oh maybe it's um I don't have at the time I have probably stronger beliefs now but I didn't necessarily spend a whole lot of time thinking what happens with the afterlife mm-hmm. and is that mm-hmm. the spirit of someone or mm-hmm. what is that and I remember when I came back and it happened to me a second time a couple mm-hmm. of weeks later same type of thing and I remember looking at just researching online because we would have mm-hmm. kept a log as to where we were, yeah. you know, latitude yeah. and longitude yeah. every day. And I remember thinking, I wonder, like, would we have been close to any shipwrecks or anything like yeah. that? Yeah. So I started just Googling and looking mm-hmm. online and I came across, I think it was old Lloyd shipping records. And we were a mile away from the last known location of a German U-boat the night that happened. Right. So I wondered... Yeah. Was it, you know, was it a spirit? Was it someone who had gone down? Like, to be honest, I don't need to explain it. I, mm-hmm. I don't know it yeah. was what it was. But yeah. I, it was just so, so real. And yeah. to this day, I'm convinced that's what I saw. Yeah. Um, And I, I started getting curious about this afterwards. And I remember I read a book called Third Man Factor. And oh. it was a book talking about different people on different adventure trips over the years where in times of extreme difficulty or uncertainty or perhaps danger that they've experienced this third yes. man this third person presence um okay so this is like a kind of known thing yeah par- apparently I, I don't know how well it's known but i remember reading about <clears throat> i think actually it might have happened shackleton or one of the men on, on one of shackleton's trip down to mm. antarctica and i i the explanation i think and i haven't looked into this in terms of the the science of the brain but whether we create a, a sort of a protective mechanism that we're creating someone who is another yeah. person or another presence yeah. to help us cope um, yeah. like when you look at something like um you know dissociative personality disorder or different mm-hmm. things where you see um remember that film fight club for example mm-hmm. years ago yeah. and, and you know it was like yeah. there was jekyll and hyde of another mm-hmm. person and, and sometimes if if someone has a lot of early trauma in their childhood mm-hmm. it's a defense mechanism where this can be this other person yeah. can be created now so i don't know is was there a form of that going on mm-hmm. out here like, to be honest I don't, and I don't what's need the, to what's know. the like a uh let's say mainstream science uh position on that or is it at all i don't know you see you see the thing about this is that if you know if the brain is doing something so if if i was somebody who i created another personality so if i had mm-hmm. say did yeah um and it doesn't matter in a way how real or unreal that is to someone if it's completely real to me yes i'm living that life yes. and I'm, I'm you know there was a lady I read about someone in in the UK and she had created, they estimate between 20 and 100 different personalities. Um, And this is what she was living through. And I I think she could even still be alive today. And she lives like, she's not dangerous, like she lives a life and she has some support or help. But even so much to the point where, you know, some of the personalities have bad eyesight. So literally she'll have glasses on when right. those personalities are coming out so i mean this is to the extreme obviously yeah um, so yeah. whether it was a bit of a coping mechanism who knows there's some people that would probably say paul yeah. you didn't actually see that that's not yeah. real um, yeah. and it's just interesting because your senses i know you met you touched on earlier like when you see a sky at nighttime mm-hmm. and you're not surrounded by lights mm-hmm. it's absolutely and i'm sure loads of people have experienced it you're out in the middle of an ocean and you've nothing like you've you're a thousand miles from land it's amazing what you sort of see. And I know your sense is like your sense of smell is incredible. I remember we saw 
a sailboat and we, we talked it on the radio and it, it, it headed off. And I, I think before we even saw it, I thought I could smell chicken or I thought I could smell yeah. laundry. Like your yeah. senses get so yeah. sharp. Yeah. Um, that's, so that's, it's... That's that's a well, well, well-known thing about that. And and that goes even to, you know, someone said like on the, at the sea, this is like an extreme level. And for example, that, you know, the smell of a human activity on the boat is so different than the smell of everything else. You can pick it up. But you even hear that from hunters who are going out and hiking in you know these these doing these diy hunt where yeah. they go out and hiking and essentially surviving in a number sure. of days it's like they can smell the animal yeah yeah right? yeah it's, yeah, it's yeah. not like and it's like it's maybe it sounds stupid but it's not yeah. only that you're glassing you also kind of smell because again you're and i think that when you're out in the nature you're kind of your sense is coming back alive into what it meant to be yeah, yeah, and yeah. quite often we don't get to experience that because we are so bombarded by different, different, Absolutely. you know, stimuli around yeah. where we are, yeah. and we have uh, artificial light and all that thing. Yeah, and now when you're all of a sudden out in the wild, your body's like, okay, it takes a couple of days. Like, okay, this is how it's supposed to work, exactly. Right? And now you're experiencing something like oh have i just smelled that thing right yeah 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 (laughs) you've hit the nail in the head like that's it's interesting because like there's quite a lot of people who have no idea how good we're supposed to feel Mm -hmm. like if you think about what you've just (laughs) said like how overstimulated and you know maybe eating crap foods and not getting enough sleep and always connected being plugged in and i come across this in my work and it's Mm -hmm. it's actually well that's a normality that has come about for a lot of people that Mm -hmm isn't actually normal it's a bit like that yes. old um you know so wh- when you think about the senses and what the senses are capable and mm-hmm. like there's still so much we don't know about the human brain and the mind like it's yeah. it's so there's things where you know if you go back to the likes of freud mm-hmm. and some of the stuff he was coming out with which you know some of it then today mm-hmm. you know like some of it was off the wall stuff but i mean he didn't have any science or he didn't have any mm-hmm. you know neuroscience behind anything and mm-hmm. so i think sometimes we look for proof and we look for evidence of stuff and, and obviously there's a place for that mm-hmm. and there's some in a way i sort of like it that you know there's some stuff that we can't explain and maybe yeah. we don't need to explain everything and yeah um, i i think that the, 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 the mainstream science that i mentioned is, is really full of dogma sometimes yeah and 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 yeah, kind yeah. of goes against the very basic scientific uh, principle of questioning, right? Because science is to question everything and assume that yeah. we're wrong. And there are some things that you just in a in a mainstream setting you don't question that because yeah, you yeah, straight yeah. away get the label of you know yeah. this that or pseudoscience or whatever. You yeah, want. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is kind of upsetting because there is so many other things to discover. You just keep an open mind. And exactly. Like, well, hang on a second, right? This is not exactly. And is, your senses, as you said, like your your sense of smell, your sense of creativity, your sense, mm. like how you're feeling, your thoughts. Like it's amazing with these sort of trips as well as, as you rightly say, a lot of these senses come alive when we're mm. away from you yeah. know, the day-to-day yeah. that, that a lot of us live in. We um, have an opportunity to actually acknowledge them. Yeah, and it's it's just, I, I think, like even just a really simple thing, you know, uh, and this is actually some of the science, there's, there's a lot of neuroscience behind this, but mm. our brains, if I said to you, tell me environments where we're we're very innovative mm-hmm. or we're very you know we can harness innovation mm-hmm. we come up with things um neuroscience now tells us mm-hmm. outside in motion near water 
yeah. three things as an example. Yeah. And this came up recently. And I know I get it off and I could be out on the bike or I'm out, you know, hiking or whatever it is I'm doing yeah. around the kayak. And I'll get ideas. I yeah. get stuff. I'm not even That's trying to. Absolutely. You know, I'm not even trying to. They coming. They just come. It's interesting. I was with a, 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 a client I was working with a couple of months ago. And we were talking about this. And uh, I said, so what about for you guys? There was about maybe 30, 40 people in the room. Mm. The session that I was uh, I was facilitating, I said, where do you get, like, you're, when you're when you're innovative, mm-hmm. tell me what's going on. What's the circumstance? Where mm-hmm. are you? What are you doing? And the CEO put his hand off. He's a really cool guy, an Australian fellow. He says, I don't want to freak anyone out, but it often happens for me in the shower. <laughs> and you get good ideas. Now, I hadn't said anything about circumstance, but I've just yeah, said to you yeah, about being yeah. outside in fresh air. Yeah. And they were just giving me all different ideas and where it happens mm-hmm. for them. And then I just shared that one point mm-hmm. with them. I said, well, there's three areas outside, in motion, near water. Mm-hmm. And it's it's things like that that sometimes we can go counter counterintuitive to that. We can say, okay, we're going to put people in the room there. Mm. Guys, we need, to get, we need to come up with some good ideas. And Yeah, be innovative now. There you go. Um, whereas if we were to sort of work with the body and work with the mind mm-hmm. to give ourselves the best chance of it, sometimes it's not even, it's not even at work. It's like that, mm-hmm. well, there's a half a day, go on, go for a hike there. Like I do a lot of um, yeah. coaching sessions and stuff where we're outside. Yeah. Um, you know, because if, if obviously the weather permits it and mm-hmm. you're fresh air, you're, you're walking. So yeah. it's... um. Yeah, like you said, there's a neuroscience behind that, how the brain works and how the various parts are switching on and off and then they can go about doing their own thing and that's where the idea is coming from. because one of the myths, I suppose, and I'm only, I consider myself for the rest of my life a student of this, but um, of the mind is that there's this sort of myth that, oh, a certain part of the brain does a certain thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's all, like, if you take, say, your amygdala as an example, small little part in in, sort of in the center of your brain, Mm -hmm. your limbic system, and it does a lot of your emotional processing regulation. So a lot of people will just might say, oh, it's the amygdala, that's the emotional, you know, Mm -hmm. it's the limbic system. And Mm -hmm. it plays a big role, but other parts are involved as well. So with the innovation piece, one of the things that happens when often we come up with good ideas is a thing called sensory gating, where your mind is, did you ever find that point where you could be, you could be driving home or you could be out mm-hmm. for a run and you, you sort of nearly lose track of, you know, you arrive home and all of a sudden, oh. Oh, yeah. Where where did that? Oh, yeah. You know, so, especially like, like when you're cycling and it's like, yeah. have I already passed that point on the way yeah, back? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Or is it still like, and this is the role that you cycle, you know, like hundreds of times. And yeah. All of a sudden, you're kind of like, again, that's something that we already spoke on the, on the podcast, like a state of flow, like a state of meditation. Where, exactly where you, flow state yeah, and yeah it's like oh what's uh where where am i yeah what's what happened yeah and yeah, you've yeah. just yeah a lot of your 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 sort of your sensory um receptors even have just they've just sort of dialed down a bit so mm-hmm. you're just sort of yes you're not necessarily thinking or you're not distracted and and that's one of the circumstances that can excuse me contribute to yeah to coming up and, and being more sort of more innovative so it's um yeah, it's fascinating that you know yeah here we are talking now yeah. we got onto this but here we are you know it's, <laughs> no, no, that's, it's, that's, it's all that's, it's all good that's good yeah uh listen any 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 final thoughts on the on the atlantic trip yeah i don't know i think um i think one of the things that and, and this is life experience i think it doesn't matter if it's the atlantic or anything else but i remember coming off the atlantic and i think actually my dad might have said it to me that mm-hmm. you know you you've changed a bit you know the person i remember i think it was my dad i said i said like the person who left the atlantic and mm-hmm. who embarked and who left the canary islands that person didn't come back mm-hmm. in that no doubt you, I'm, I'm not surprised you know you I'm you like, not that you, you don't completely change or anything but you you sort of evolve and it, it definitely for me it it 
because you've so much time out there to think about things in your life that you've enjoyed, mm-hmm. what you might want to do, stuff you might want to change because you, you're, you're totally uninterrupted. And I think for me, that was one thing. It, it challenged my own perception of, I think, how I want to live life and mm-hmm. what's possible, what isn't possible. Um, so I think in a healthy way, it just it just shook up some of my perspectives, right. um, which I think isn't a, isn't a bad thing. You know, and it, you, you mentioned it earlier, the the curiosity and the openness mm-hmm. to learn and to experience stuff. I think that definitely shifted um, to the point where, you know, I, th- I think I've always had this in me, but, you know, if someone says something can't be done mm-hmm. uh, and I grew up with mom always telling me there's no such thing as can't. And I think I always, I just instinctively now, and it's it's been sort of reinforced, I think, mm-hmm. by the Atlantic trip to go, well, why can't it? Maybe we just haven't figured out how to do it yet. But, yeah. uh, you know, maybe I can't do it, but you could or, you know, yeah. it, it's, I suppose I, I, I'm probably a lot more curiously questioning things now, mm-hmm. um, even for, you know, from a work, perspective to go okay it's 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 fine doing some of the work but me as you know a performance coach or a consultant right now mm-hmm. where i need to be in a year and two years and three years mm-hmm. i need to continuously up my game because yeah. the version of me now mm-hmm. in my opinion it needs to be more evolved it needs to improve so that you're coming up with more innovative ways to work with people and it's not being innovative for the sake of it, but it's mm-hmm. going, so what can I do or what pieces of whether it's science or whether it's experiences or bringing people out and retreats, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. what can I incorporate into what I do to make that experience better? So that if I'm working with someone, they're going to take more away from that. Yeah. So that's, I think that shifted a bit for me after the, the Atlantic Great. trip. Great. Okay, I just want to quickly touch on the on some other of your adventures. We we don't have enough time to speak about everything, but then your Arctic trip. Yeah, that was um. So that was a trip where it was um. I was living in Canada, so I was living in Vancouver over on the west coast of Canada, and um, it was a trip that myself. How many years after was it? This would have been um five. No, it was 2014. 2013 was the Arctic trip and 2006 was the Atlantic trip. So, right. um, right. so it was a few years after. I'd done a couple of small things in between. Yeah. but And have you been like thinking like, damn, I need to, I need to get into that yeah. zone again. Was that yeah, something? No, do you know what the funny thing is? I, I think it, I think these things just sort of seem to happen as in, you know, the way you could be, you could be walking down the road, you could be doing anything and there's mm-hmm. probably opportunities and choices and different things all around us every day Mm -hmm. but depending on where we are we may where we are in ourselves we may see those opportunities or we may not and i think yeah i think for me i wasn't running around going god what's the next thing what's the next thing Mm -hmm. it sort of happens organically and i think i think if i'm if i'm in a sort of a good place Mm -hmm. i'm more likely to go oh god that's interesting so like i was literally i was asked to speak at an adventure show and it was like a sort of um so it wasn't like an itch that you had to scratch. No, I, I think maybe, you know, maybe subconsciously it was there mm-hmm. going. I'd done a couple of smaller sort of cycling stuff in between. And maybe without me consciously being aware of it, I was, mm-hmm. you know, I was on the prowl for something. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but it was a it was an event called Feet. It was a really cool event, actually. You had about eight or nine t- people speaking for... Mm-hmm. I think it was seven or eight minutes each mm-hmm. and there was some adventure people there who'd done other trips and and Kevin who I mentioned earlier Kevin Vallely he was uh he was there 
speaking, I think, before me. And we all arrived to the, the theatre where it was on at four or five o'clock and went mm-hmm. through sort of prep stuff. And then the show started at whatever, seven mm-hmm. o'clock, eight. Um, and so we we're all chatting away beforehand. And Kevin held the record for the fastest trip at the time to the South Pole. Wow. So he was talking about loads of different trips he'd done. And, and this was one of them. And Kevin's parents are from Limerick, where mm-hmm. I'm from. Mm-hmm. So we ended up just sort of chatting and over the course of the night... I was because Antarctica. I was in Antarctica years ago, but I was just the whole thing of the South Pole was. Mm-hmm. It was sort of in the back of my mind. So my seven Kev arranged to meet for a coffee, a week or two later, and um, I wanted to pick his brain on the South Pole. And what I didn't realize is he wanted to pick my brain because he had been thinking about rowing or trying to go through the Northwest Passage <laughs> in the Canadian Arctic. So no one oh, had right. ever done it. So, um, right. again, just for, for, I suppose, people listening, so the, the Northwest Passage, if you look at a map of Canada and go north, so if you go say go west, go to Vancouver on the west coast and keep going north until you run out of land, the Northwest Passage connects the Pacific and the Atlantic Ocean, so it runs right through the Canadian archipelago up in the, mm-hmm. the high Arctic. So that was, um, no one had ever managed to do that in one season on human power, and primarily because probably up to 10, 15 years ago, it was choked with ice year round. Yes. Is that the passage that just recently opened up for the first time? Well, because it, of the, the it's climate, basically yeah, with with, with, with the, the climate, with the warming of the climate now, uh, and with climate change as a whole, um, you now get maybe a two to three month window where the ice will break up and it's navigable. Mm-hmm. So um, that's probably one of the main reasons why someone hadn't done it, I'd say, before. And, and look, mm-hmm. it might not be on everyone's radar to do anyway. Yeah, yeah. So um, so Kev was asking me about this and mm-hmm. I started chatting. I, I honestly... Lower. Well, he was like, you know, could could the boat that you used, would that be maybe suitable for mm-hmm. up here? And half an hour into it, I was like, God, this could be really interesting. And he <laughs> said, you know, I, I've been thinking about this for... Kev had this idea probably 10 years earlier. Oh, wow. So um, he's like, it's one of the last firsts yes. that has yet to be done. And somebody will do it at some point. So he was like, "Like, what do you think? And I was like, yeah, geez, that sounds interesting. And um, so we left and I walked out of there mm-hmm. hand on heart, honestly going, I'm not too sure where the Northwest Passage is. I didn't want to say it to Kev, like, uh-huh. so where exactly is? I knew it was up somewhere <laughs> in the Arctic. So um, I started looking at Googling mm-hmm. it. And I think it was just before Christmas. I was coming back to Ireland for mm-hmm. Christmas. Got back to Vancouver after Christmas and I rang Kev and I said, let's do it mm-hmm. um, if you're up for it. So that was the start of it. And it was interesting. So Kevin has written a book about that trip, which was only published in the last couple of months. Okay. And he actually, because he sent me a, a proof to sort of read some of it beforehand. And his his perception of what happened there mm-hmm. was that I walked away. And he was like, yeah, I'm not sure if Paul was altogether that interested. Mm-hmm. And that that's what Kev sort of, that's how, how it landed with him. Um, oh, whereas I think God. I was probably going, right, I need to find out, I need to just find out a little bit more about this. Um, but it was, it was similar once, mm-hmm. once I got to that point, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Um, but that turned out to be probably the most challenging trip both to do and to prepare for because we we decided you, you we had, we we sort of brought it down to two choices so we had a team of four so mm-hmm. a good friend of Kev's Frank Wolf um was going to do it with us and Dennis Barnett a mate of mine from Dublin mm-hmm. so the four of us were were all going to do it together mm-hmm. and Frank's a filmmaker so mm-hmm. we decided to make a documentary on this and oh. we said well we really shouldn't be able to do this so mm-hmm. wouldn't it be interesting to stop into some of the communities along the way get their view on climate change yeah 
let's not tell like it's not our business oh climate change what do you think yeah you, know, you tell that's, us what, that's, what, that's great what because, life is like because these people know because they're they're like <sighs> they've grown up on the land I, they know the it. land i'd love it that you just said let's like it's okay it's, let's let's not us decide no, what it is 100 percent. ask the people who are there because they kind of know they've seen <laughs> the their backyard it's their home it's like if you know if if it's like if someone lived somewhere for 40, 50, 60, 70 years and someone else mm. comes in and says, oh, so this is what's happened here. Well, no, no, just yeah. there's, there's a reason. I think we have two ears yeah. and one mouth. Yeah. So yeah. we went in there and we just, you know, we just wanted to listen and hear from them. And it was fascinating just to, I mean, there was only two or three communities because mm-hmm. this is a couple of thousand kilometers mm-hmm. of, of a trip. So there isn't a whole lot of, you know, settlements up there. Yeah. So we got to speak with with and and learn from the Inuit people, and they um they just said like some of them would say yeah like when I grew up these were elders who were maybe mm-hmm. sixty seventy eighty mm-hmm. years old, we're like well when we grew up you know we didn't have water it was choked up with ice year round and mm-hmm. that's affected for them you know the type of uh, animals you see up there mm-hmm. they're hunting they're yeah. fishing so it's it's really affected them their way of life so I mean a simple example was um one of the guys was telling us about pizzlies and growlers. Mm. So now you're getting um, grizzly bears moving further north yes. because they wouldn't have gone up there in the past yes. and they're breeding with polar bears. Yes. So they were telling us like when you get a male polar and mm. a female grizzly, mm-hmm. they call it a pizzly. <laughs> when it's a male um, grizzly and a female <laughs> polar, they call it a growler. So it it's just, it, it, just things like that which yeah. seems sort of crazy in a way so polar bears are are actually they're grizzlies they're they're very closely related to grizzlies i think they are they're grizzlies who are ventured further north and and they adapted listen so the question is like overall the when you were talking to the indigenous people there do they finding the life better now because the climate is warmer it's it's a it's a tricky one i mean one of the things that i wasn't aware of until Mm -hmm. and i was back up in the arctic back in in april um for a different trip and i remember even before that one and before this mm-hmm. one a couple of years ago that like the inuit and the inuvialit they're like they're you know they like to roam the land they like to travel on the land yeah this is what what i heard from people that it's part of sort of who they are and back in i think it was the 1950s the canadian government were trying to corral people into communities mm-hmm. you know you have to, you have to yeah, yeah, into communities and yeah they were treated quite badly mm-hmm. um and at the moment there there is in canada there's the sort of maybe an, an acknowledgement to a point about reconciliation mm-hmm. that you know there needs to be a reconciliation for all okay. the stuff that happened back then okay. so i mean i think for them life is it's a harsh way of living i mean they've grown up there and and when you're in these communities they have maybe you know they have 200 300 400 people you know where we finished up in cambridge bay was 1500 people which is quite big mm-hmm. So, I mean, for them, everything's very practical. Like, you know, can mm-hmm. I fix my skidoo if it breaks down? Yeah. Because if it, if I can't, I could be stranded out here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they, you know, one of the, an outfitter who I met in, in April and he was telling me, he's like, I just, I love being on the land. And I remember one night being out with him, he'd be showing me how they cut ice out of frozen rivers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how you cut it depending on the cracks and stuff yeah. like that. And and I think the land, it's, it's, it's a real it's a tough way of life for them because I think now with, you know, with internet and the way the world has sort of opened up, the mm-hmm. younger people are, you know, maybe they, they see what's outside of this community mm-hmm. and, and some of them will 
will grow up and will want to leave and will want to get oh, out yeah. and they mightn't come back and some do want to come back and some of these communities are um you know we the, one of the communities in baffin island where i was very high rate of suicide and it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a you know if there isn't things to do and if they've haven't got much funding from maybe the government to provide mm-hmm. services and stuff for young people it's it's really challenging but is so. that rate of suicide when I, and this is a question that I may not know the answer but i was wondering whether it is because of the opening up of the world and the life is generally changing so it's, then yeah, they're yeah. going into the you know like oh i would like this and that where before because i mean like i mean like in the traditional they were able of living if there was a high suicide rate they probably wouldn't survive to the modern time so is it like a more of a like they had to focus on their way of life before it was hard life and they were doing that but they were happy but now because everything is easier with the access to technology this is yeah. coming it's it's hard to know i mean i know obviously with and i'm no expert on suicide by by long stretch imagination there's different factors obviously they can contribute to it and i know we we um we stayed with uh this is in april i stayed with um a local in in his home uh for a night when we when we finished the trip and he was a uh, he was a retired nurse so he does a lot of youth mm-hmm. work up there in this mm-hmm. in this town called Pengerton and he um he was telling us with the with a lot of the teenage because maybe you know their home situation might not be great it might not be mm-hmm. stable there could be you know drink involved and for a lot of these communities they're dry communities so they've chosen that you know there's no alcohol like you you can you can have alcohol in your home yeah but i i think from my understanding of it it's a little bit like um like some of the aboriginal people in in the um in australia mm-hmm. they're, they they don't cope as well with alcohol yeah and their system yeah um yeah. i think it's a physiological thing yeah, yeah. there's uh, there's a hormone or, or some some chemical in the body that that some of these groups has just less yeah like, like it, it, uh, people in asia they have less and that's why the tolerance getting, level i think is, yeah. is less so i think it it's not a great thing mm-hmm. you know for them to have per se so a lot of these communities so if you take maybe not a great home situation maybe if both parents aren't mm-hmm. there or one mm-hmm. is left you know mm-hmm. for work or whatever put in drink put in boredom put in potentially yes. i can see through the internet there's mm-hmm this stuff Ex- out here exactly that's, and that's what i'm yeah. you know i my schooling you know I, i'm getting to grade 12 but really the level of it it's probably grade eight or nine and you know what use is this to me because i'm going to be living off the land so a lot of the mm-hmm. stuff can go into that to, to yeah so i suppose it, it it gave me when you go through some of these places and it's interesting because the first arctic trip the rowing trip like we pulled into a few places and like people were fascinated by god you're rowing through here what's that's crazy and mm-hmm. and again i was just fascinated about wow you live up here and you know like a real simple thing was um you know a lot of them will have community freezers so they literally <laughs> will have these freezers in the permafrost where you know people will go out hunting um, yeah. and they'll come back and they'll they'll store f- like whether it's caribou whether it's arctic char so they'll mm-hmm. catch more you know for elders and stuff yeah. so there's an incredible sense of community up there in one way which is which is amazing mm. uh, and it's also a it's a it's a practical yeah way yeah. of of it's a harsh place to live i'm su- i'm actually i'm actually surprised that that she's saying that there's a sense of community but at the same time as a high suicide rate well it's, there's it's, a book by sebastian junger called the tribe i don't know if you heard about that book no no i, I essentially it's a, it's a fascinating book where he actually says that that how 
how important for for humans is this this sense of the of the community mm. overcoming adversity and and he gives example where the suicide rates are the highest when there are you know like a very expensive houses and gated communities and like everybody's like you know like a great living there's high suicide rates while in a in the neighborhoods where the poverty and people are kind of have to organize together just to survive just to go through the day actually there are the suicide rates are very low yeah and, and kind of like you know this is so this is what i'm like based on on that what i read is, is kind of surprising and I, well i think as well as is so what i'm t when i talk about the community freezer uh, and the community where that was was a place called Politoc, which was higher up in the Arctic. Mm -hmm. And I talk about, say, Pangerton, which was a different settlement. Oh, okay. So they, they, so they, they, they yeah, they were different. Uh, um, it, so, but but having said that, I'm sure there's there's quite a lot of variables that go into it. Oh, yes. So um, as usual, nothing is that simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's definitely, I mean, there's it's it's amazing to, you know, we only spent a few days in say Pangerton where we finished the, the the trip I did in in April whereas the the rowing trip say through the Northwest Passage mm -hmm. you know we were in Politoc for one night after mm -hmm. a month just to sort of restock and we, we needed to get another anchor and yeah um so you get to you get a tiny little snippet you know into yes. sort of what what it's a little flavor but it was um it was just fascinating to see how they live and to see um just their perspective again it comes back to what we were talking about earlier even with the australian cycle mm -hmm. you just get to see other people's views of the world yeah. and i'm just curious by nature i think yeah. so you're you know, it's like wow god that's that's amazing and so um it's i think it's it is one of the nice things that and that's why i said earlier with trips and stuff there mm. i think there just needs to be it's all look every person decides what they want to do uh, and each to their own and some people will want to do a trip just to do it and it's the physical challenge and, and i'm similar in that respect mm. so i suppose the and that i would put with that is i think maybe as i get a bit older it's i want it to mean something a bit more mm -hmm. so um yeah so i mean and that trip was tough because you know we we got two months into it and mm. we didn't get the whole way through the mm. northwest passage so the water was starting to it was sort of September, early September. It was just starting to sort of slush, starting to freeze yeah. up again. So, so we had to make a call at Cambridge Bay to go. That's as far as we we're going to get. Right. So, um, it's tough like that. I mean, when you're going to reattempt, I'll see. I mean, we're I'm we're we're looking at it. Um, there's a lot of things involved in it because I think, with the benefit of hindsight, we went in a rowing boat, mm -hmm. ocean rowing boat style. We can go 24 hours a day. We got thrashed around up there by weather. A lot of the winds that when we had touched base with some of mm -hmm. the communities to get a feel in advance, mm -hmm. go, what are the prevailing winds? And they're mm -hmm. westerly, so mm -hmm. we started to go west yeah. to east, but winds were really erratic. Some of the locals said to us, like, yeah, they're just, this year they seem to be all over the shop. And, and mm -hmm. that's, I think now if we were going to go back to either try and finish it mm -hmm. or potentially go back and try and do the whole thing in one go, yeah. it'd be a kayak trip. Oh. Um, so I think it's, it's, um, Okay, you, you recalibrate and yeah, yeah I suppose yeah. again, look, you you learn from your experience and you sort of you you do your best. I mean, like when we we built the boat and we got, you know, we had an awful lot went into that, and and mm. one of the things like I remember, we were on a timeline, so because we knew we need to leave in late June, mm -hmm. early July once the ice breaks up, yeah. everything works backwards from that. So we were on a timeline to get the boat built, and. It, the whole trip was costing us probably about a quarter of a million 
Canadian dollars to, between all the gear and getting yeah. stuff up there and everything goes into it. So we were putting our own money into it, but we got to a point that we, we, we were clear with the boat builder. Like he said, okay, I need to be paid in quarterly tranches. Yeah. We said, we'll pay you as we can, but we could very well get to tranche two, mm-hmm. have nothing left. And mm-hmm. he was like, that's fine. You'll have a shell of a boat, but you just need to be aware of that. So we yeah. were, one of the things with some of these trips is you've got to, you got to believe, I suppose, in yourself or you got to back yourself to go, this is, and I remember talking to Kevin about this. I said, this is too good an overall trip mm-hmm. for it not to happen. And I, I'll never forget <laughs> sending a check one day. It was the last mm-hmm. of the funds that we had to the boat builder. Mm-hmm. And as I posted, because like, he lived in Vancouver Island and, and we were down to probably a month or two where it was like, right, we have to try this next year. Mm. And we did get a corporate partner on board eventually. But it was literally down to the wire. And that's sort of, you know, a company, an Irish company actually called Mainstream. Renewable okay. Power and they build um, solar good. farms all over the world Very and wind good. farms. And uh, that's one of the things with some of these tri- It's probably a little bit like starting your own business that there's there's uncertainty and you have to, you have to literally yeah. push the boat out and go, yeah. I don't know if this is even, <laughs> it's a really weird thing because you put everything into it, you commit to it, you start telling people about it. Mm-hmm. So you start sort of hanging yourself out there a bit. Uh, and in a way, I suppose that's needed because if you don't yeah. do that, you know, you, you put you you bring a bit of pressure on yourself to go right. Well, we're telling people about this. We've built a website or whatever you've done. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a really it's a really tricky one because you don't know until you get unless you have you know. In our case, we didn't have that money lying around mm-hmm. to self fund it. So it's, um, <laughs> and that's that's the reality with a lot of these sort of expeditions. That's just part of it. So. Great. Listen, uh, Paul. Tell 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 us where where they can find any anything more about your you your your trips your adventures, uh, because obviously there is much more, and we'll we'll have to wrap it up. So yeah, yeah. For anyone um, interested for, for yeah, more. I suppose look for anyone who wants more information. Um, my company website is Taurus Consulting. That's mm-hmm. Taurus is T U R A S. So TaurusConsulting dot com. Taurus is the Gaelic word for journey. Um, right. So when I set my my company up a number of years ago. I just it really sort of, you know, we're all on our own journey in life, whatever that might be, and and obviously, I suppose I have an affinity for different types of adventure <laughs> journeys. So, um So yeah, there's there's stuff on there, and I do a lot of collaboration work with mm-hmm. Below the Line, mm-hmm. uh, which is where we're in in our offices here. Mm-hmm. So there's information on on Below the Line and Peak Teams, who are partners that I sort of work with as well. So right, it's plus, all up there. Plus plus the books on the yeah yeah. There's links there if people want to buy buy either of the books. They're they're all up there as well. Yeah. That's perfect. Paul, thank you very much for doing this. It was a pleasure. No, my pleasure is mine. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you.